Good morning. I'm Sanaa and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Monday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab that cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. What pops into your mind when I say birth control? Perhaps given our current state of affairs, your mind went to the Supreme Court's reversal of Roe v. Wade or Tennessee's own trigger ban that went into effect prohibiting abortion. But when you think about birth control, does your mind go to hormonal birth control or in other words, the birth control methods made for women's bodies? If so, you're not alone. But what does that mental shortcut linking birth control and women's bodies tell us about how our society views contraception and pregnancy? And why does it matter? To talk about the gendered politics of birth control and preventing pregnancy and how it contributes to inequality, this morning I'm joined by Dr. Crystal Littlejohn. Dr. Littlejohn is an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Oregon. Her work examines race, gender, and reproduction. She is particularly interested in investigating how cultural categories shape behavior in intimate relationships and examining the consequences of these behaviors for health outcomes. Her work has been published in Demography, Gender and Society, and Journal of Health and Social Behavior, among other outlets. Dr. Littlejohn's research has been supported by funding from the American Sociological Association's Minority Fellowship Program, the American Association of University Women, and the Society of Family Planning. Dr. Littlejohn is the author of Just Get on the Pill, The Uneven Burden of Reproductive Politics, which is available in bookstores now. Good morning, Dr. Littlejohn. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, I am so excited that you are here with us this morning. When I saw your book and the title and just how catchy the cover art is as well, I knew I had to have you on the show. And I'm just so glad that you said yes, because as we were kind of talking about before we went on air, your book is so timely and so important right now, especially. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be able to talk about the stuff that I bring up in the book, to be able to share the experiences of so many people out there that are having challenges with birth control, uh, that are carrying the burden for birth control, and people don't even know that they're doing it. And I just think it's such an important time to be talking about these things so that people that don't know what's going on can start to learn about what's going on. Yes. I mean, so first of all, I read the book, absolutely loved it. Um, It's a really easy read and an engaging read, which I think is important because as you mentioned, this is an important topic given everything that's going on right now, especially, um, and the information you have, I think is so relevant. And because it's in such an easy to read digestible format, I think the book um, will really help a lot of people rethink how they're talking about contraception, even some of the choices that they're making as well. Absolutely. That's been one of the bright spots, the biggest bright spots for me of of publishing this book is being able to hear 
from people who write to me, who call into radio shows that I'm on and talk about how it's making them think differently about birth control. They're having different kinds of conversations with their kids about birth control, with their friends about birth control. And so when I wrote the book, I really wanted to, I wanted it to be read by as many people as possible. I wanted people to pick it up and to say, you know, I didn't know that I was thinking about these, these things in these ways in ways that are so taken for granted. Um, and I want to think differently about this. And and one of the things that's been so inspiring for me is hearing from people who not only tell me about how it's changing things for them, but they talk to me about how they're sharing it with other people. So I oftentimes are people like, I gave it to my friend or I was telling my friend about this. We were talking about this experience from the book. And that just makes my day uh, and and really just pushes me to keep doing doing this work so that we can continue to be in conversation about something that's so important. Oh, yeah. I'm totally one of those people who as soon as I learn something, I have to tell everyone else about it. And I don't have any kids, but a lot of my friends have kids. And now I'm definitely going to be like, oh, by the way, when you're talking to your kids about birth control and contraception, here are some things that you should say or some things maybe you shouldn't say or just a different way of framing it. So now everyone, you are on alert that I'm going to be that person. But let's go ahead and jump into it because you talk about how we are all socialized into using particular forms of birth control. And can you kind of just expand on that and let our listeners know, what does that mean? What it really means is that when we think about birth control, oftentimes we immediately think about particular kinds of bodies. So when we hear the word birth control, a lot of people automatically think we're talking about hormonal birth control. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they'll go to the pill, they'll go to the shot, they'll go to the bodies of women and people who can get pregnant. And it's kind of a stand-in. And I talk about this in the book, right? That birth control became this kind of discursive stand-in for prescription birth control, for hormonal birth control. And so we think about birth control, we go to people's bodies, we think about prescription birth control for women, for people who can get pregnant. And when we think about condoms, Uh, unfortunately, we automatically think that they belong to men, to men's bodies. Uh, I should also say, I think it's unfortunate that when we think about birth control, we automatically think only about prescription birth control for women, right? Because birth control, there's lots of different birth control methods. Condoms can and should be understood as being for all partners involved in a sexual encounter. It doesn't only have to be thought about being a man's method, but the way that our society is set up, the way that we're oftentimes taught to think about things, the way that people learn about uh, birth control and sex ed, uh, they tend to start immediately think about thinking about it as condoms are for men, um, prescription birth control is for women, and that's the way it goes, and that's the way that people should behave. Mm-hmm. Even just reading that in the book, I was like, wow, like, yes, right? Like, even when we say birth control, I would never think about condoms as birth control because as you, you know, break down in the book, we've been so socialized into believing that birth control means some sort of hormonal method that women are supposed to take and should take as soon as they're sexually active, right? As as young ladies or young girls, Um, And so even that just kind of wrapping my mind around like, wow, I have been so like, this has been so ingrained, even in how I think about it, um, I think was one big kind of shift. um, As you talk about in the book, getting this idea out of our minds that condoms are for men, 
Um, and I want to talk a little bit more about what that what that can lead to when we believe that condoms are just for men or condoms are the man's responsibility. It can lead to so many negative consequences. And I am so glad that this is where we're starting uh, because I think from the beginning, we have to make it clear that having these kinds of ideas leads to really bad stuff happening, right? So when we believe that condoms are for men, automatically uh, women's experiences kind of fall out of the picture, right? So uh, who gets to control a condom? Well, if it's a man, if it, if we think of it as a man's method, then automatically people believe that the man gets to control the condom. Um, what does that mean for preventing disease when we have these expectations that a, a method that is so important for not only preventing pregnancy, but also for preventing sexually transmitted infections doesn't in fact belong to the person um, who has the experience of a condom being in their bodies, right? Like that kind of framework and that kind of thinking leads to so many detrimental consequences for people. It means that, as I said, people don't, don't necessarily, women don't necessarily believe that it is within their control um, to try and do anything about. It means that some women don't feel comfortable buying and bringing condoms because they think that that's their partner's job to do. It means that they end up focusing heavily on trying to prevent pregnancy using prescription birth control versus thinking about using condoms to not only prevent pregnancy, but to prevent disease too. And so when when the initial message is that a condom, which is such a powerful form of birth control and such a powerful technology, when the message is that that belongs to men, it is really disempowering and frankly, really dangerous, right? I think that we need to completely shift the way that we think about um, who these methods belong to. And I think that we need to get really smart about what this means for the consequences in people's relationships when we uphold that kind of messaging, whether that's in public health or whether that's in our friendships, relationships, classrooms, you know, across the spectrum, right? This is not only about um, relationships taking place within people's private encounters, right? This is something that is just so widespread in our society. And that leads to a lot of negative consequences if we're, if we're not being mindful about the content of the messages that we're sharing. Mm -hmm. And you bring up something really important. We talk a lot, particularly when we, when it comes to contraception, our focus is primarily on preventing pregnancy. And as you just mentioned, that leaves out a lot of other things that birth control and particularly condoms are really important for, right? Preventing STDs, STIs, and that leaves people um, unprotected, right? When we think of condoms as just within the man's domain and as something else you point out in the book, uh, this kind of cultural, I guess, understanding or expectation that men and women in heterosexual long-term relationships won't use condoms or shouldn't use condoms. Can you talk a little bit about that? I absolutely think that this is an overlooked area of domestic labor, right? I oftentimes don't think that we imagine contraception to be part of a person's domestic work that they're doing in the household. And in particular in the book, right, we think about socialization and gender. We don't think about this as a gendered thing that women have to take care of and are understood as being responsible for. Uh, but what it really means is that when it comes to their relationships, 
people expect that women are going to be the one to prevent pregnancy and they expect that they're going to prevent pregnancy using hormonal methods. And on the surface, that might make sense to people, right? There's this expectation that these methods are among the most effective, right? The IUD, especially, right? We have a lot of, you know, stuff in the popular media right now around the effectiveness of methods like the IUD. Um, and so there's this expectation that women have women and people who can get pregnant have access to these really effective methods. And that's why we should expect them to use them to prevent pregnancy. But what is lost in that narrative and what's lost in that conversation is how much work goes into using these methods, right? And on top of the fact that it's not fair to expect that it's only a woman's job to prevent pregnancy. Uh, we also just lose sight of the fact that they do a lot of work to make it happen. And that a part, a huge part of the reason why these methods are so effective is because people agree to use them, right? So when we, when it comes to the pill, which is, you know, the most popular form of reversible birth control, um, women, and people who get pregnant commit to taking the pill every day. And that is what makes the pill so effective, right? And so it's just so striking for me when we have these conversations and when I hear people talking about how um, it's just the woman's job to prevent pregnancy and when they have these methods that uh, are not only so effective, but people sometimes I think imagine them to be trivial to use. Uh, and sometimes one of the, the things that, ends up coming up is, well, people won't use condoms, right? So it's hard for them to use condoms. And that's why people should just use prescription birth control. But it's like, when women have trouble using prescription birth control, what do we do? What do we say? We don't say, yeah, prescription birth control is hard. I get it if you don't just if you just decide not to use it, right? Instead, we come up with all of these things that they can do to stay on the pill, right? Take it at a particular time of the day, set an alarm for it, put it next to the things that you're going to be using, on a daily basis as a reminder mm -hmm. I had one woman in the book who talked about how she would feel nauseated and so she would take the pill at night so that she could sleep through any nausea right so when we imagine that these methods um, are for women and that they should use them because they're just easier to use we end up really ignoring the other part of the experience for some people which entails things being tricky to use things being annoying to use they have to go to the doctor to get their methods they have to go get refills right they deal with side effects there are all of these things that end up being part of this experience that just falls out of the cultural narrative and I think it's part of this broader reflection of the ways that we gender domestic labor but also the ways that we expect women to tolerate um, things that are difficult right so when it comes to them being feeling sick or feeling annoyed or having challenges it's just something that people think they should put up with whereas when it comes to men's experiences with condoms the automatic uh, assertion is that they some men don't like them so of course they're not going to be used as frequently or as effectively. Um, and so it just makes sense to go to prescription birth control uh, for women. But of course, what about their experiences, right? That those experiences and people that are having negative experiences, that kind of stuff just falls by the wayside. And we immediately um, center men's experiences, which, you know, I could go on and on about the patriarchy. <laughs> I could say all I could say all sorts of things about that gender inequality. I could go on and on about it.
Um, but I, I'll just you know suffice to say I think I think it's uh, unfortunate uh, to to put it simply that that that's the way it is in our society. Mm-hmm. You said so much, right? right? I mean, <laughs> there was so much in there. First, for people who are listening, and, and particularly folks who take hormonal birth control. I think there was maybe a a, a little bit of validation and affirmation in what you just said, because even, you know, from what you just shared here, and I'm thinking about what you wrote in the book, we folks who take hormonal birth control have really accepted that this is just what we do. And you share a lot of vignettes and stories from the folks that you interviewed with them saying like, yeah, it was just expected when I came of a certain age or, or what have you that I would get on the pill. And that is how a lot of us are raised or what we learn from our friends, I should say, not even how we're raised because most of our parents aren't having these <laughs> in-depth conversations, right, with us about birth control, but rather our friends are on the pill or cousins or whomever, and we just learn that this is what we do. And as you mentioned, because we've accepted that this is just what we do, we've also accepted that we get the side effects, that we have the nausea, the headaches, the mood swings, the weight gain, or what have you, and we are just supposed to deal with it because that's our job. And and I love how you really talk about these gendered expectations that we've really just simply accepted as if this is just how it has to be. Absolutely. And I think it's just so striking when I mentioned how we don't think about this as a form of domestic labor, right? But when we imagine the ways that we expect women to tolerate other things that are unfair and other things that are unfortunate when you add birth control to it it's like yeah it just makes sense this is just one more of those things right expecting them uh to work the second shift and take care of the kids and for people that have kids and go to work and and just manage to juggle all of these balls um and expect that that they just put up with it and I think when it comes to using prescription birth control methods because there is this sense that birth control it, it is right there's no question that it's incredibly important there's no question that it's um changes people's lives and and allows them to prevent pregnancy um and have their families look the way they want their families to look there's no question that that's incredibly important but i think that when the assumption is that they're the only ones that should be doing the work it becomes really easy to say well of course they should tolerate it right well if you don't want to get pregnant then what are some side effects right if you don't want to get pregnant how big of a deal is it to go to the doctor and and figure out your schedule and work around your schedule to get your birth control filled versus saying we need to take a step back from that and say that it is not only a woman's responsibility to prevent pregnancy, right? That her partner also has an important role to play in preventing pregnancy. And when we make sure that we start from that perspective, then it makes it easier to say, oh, look, look at the things that people that are taking prescription birth control um, and using other methods that they have to use all by themselves, right? Whether they're, you know, some women in the study talk about not just using hormonal methods, they talk about using a copper IUD, right? Which doesn't have hormones, but it still requires active participation on their part to get it put in and to deal with any side effects that might come up. 
um, when we have to think about those experiences, right? And when we make sure that we don't just decenter men um, and that we say they have a role to play in this, then it makes it easier to see the people that have been carrying the load and doing the majority of the work it's it's an unfair burden to be placing on them and and we should absolutely recognize that the acceptance of them carrying that burden is is easier because we have this broader cultural narrative that just says that women should put up with things um and that they should tolerate things um to get any semblance of a life that looks the way they want it to look versus saying that's not fair, right? That's that's an injustice to expect that they uh, have to fight so hard just to reach their goals. Like that's, that it just shouldn't, shouldn't be that way. And I think that the book and the women's stories in the book help bring that front and center for, for readers that might not have that experience. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, let's take a quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa and I'm here with Dr. Crystal Littlejohn, an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Oregon and the author of Just Get on the Pill, The Uneven Burden of Reproductive Politics. Now, before the break, we were talking about how we really just socialize, particularly as women or folks who can take hormonal birth control, that we should take birth control and that all of the responsibility of preventing pregnancy is on our shoulders. Um, One thing that really stood out to me in the book was Uh, around condom usage and how because um, women are really steered towards hormonal birth control, that means that conversations around condoms and condom usage are almost non-existent. And I wanted you to talk a little bit more about some of the consequences of this, particularly in longer term relationships. Yeah. So I think when, um, we end up expecting from the beginning that women and people who can get pregnant are going to use prescription birth control, then it makes it really easy for us to suggest that condoms should just fall by the wayside, right? And so I think people are especially familiar with this message that condoms are really most important to prevent sexually transmitted infections. And so what does that mean when a couple is have they've been dating for a few months uh they're expecting that they're not going to see anybody else and the message is that a condom is for men first of all and second of all that the condoms are most important to prevent sexually transmitted infections it means that once a couple reaches a few months in their relationship it becomes super easy for the sometimes and i would say oftentimes Um, unspoken expectation that they're just going to stop using condoms and that they're going to just segue or transition uh, into using prescription birth control exclusively, which then puts the burden even more so on women uh, if they had at least had a partner previously who was using condoms because, you know, they were still just filling things out or they weren't feeling totally serious yet. Um, And so in relationships, uh, oftentimes people stop using condoms, they transition on to using prescription birth control. And then the burden for preventing pregnancy is the is the woman's to carry for as long as that relationship lasts oftentimes. So in the book, I tell stories of women who 
stopped using condoms with their partners and then the challenges that they face trying to get their partners to get back onto using condoms after that so there's a woman in the story I have a whole book chapter named after this person's experience where uh, she was talking about how her boyfriend she and her boyfriend had decided to stop using condoms um, and she was just using the pill and when she wanted him to start get back, getting back to using condoms so that she could stop taking the pill because she didn't want to take it anymore, uh, they had a fight. They had a big fight uh, because he didn't want to go back to using condoms. And uh, when she tried to assert that, hey, this is what she wanted him to do, he called her a bitch, you know, for not wanting um, to get back on the pill. And so this notion um, that couples uh, and I think this is part of this broader public health messaging as well right that the biggest issue is preventing pregnancy and that couples should use prescription birth control because it is the most effective way to prevent pregnancy I think that it can really sidestep challenges with bodily autonomy that people can have in their relationships later when you have women who uh, might get tired of using a prescription birth control method or women who find that hey it's they're they're just struggling to use their method, right? People that are feeling really busy, uh, people that have jobs and er erratic schedules and have trouble making sure they're making their appointments or using the pill and don't want to use a longer term form of birth control like an IUD. If we suggest that the goal should be just to get on prescription birth control as the long term thing to do, it ends up creating a lot of challenges for people um, who transitioned off of using condoms only to find that that's not necessarily what they want to do for the long term, but there's not cultural support for, for trying something new, right? For trying something different and saying, hey, they want to get back into using condoms. That's, that's really hard. And I think a lot of people who have tried habits and given them up they know, right? That's hard, right? Like when, mm -hmm. when a couple has stopped using condoms, it can be really hard for them to get back into the rhythm of doing that again. And when that is reinforced by this larger cultural message that says they don't have to do that, right? A man doesn't have to start using a condom again um, after they've used prescription birth control. It just creates a lot of challenges for people. And I think it ends up um, having these hidden costs that, that folks are not necessarily aware of in the broader public. Mm -hmm. I think something you said um, here, I just want to draw out because I think it's so important where birth, hormonal birth control is supposed to provide women with more bodily autonomy. We see that sometimes it actually is decreasing women's bodily autonomy. And I think that's so key because again, we just kind of accepted like, oh yeah, women are going to take hormonal birth control, kind of the end. Um, but we haven't really given a lot of thought to what some of those effects are um, in relationships or in women's own ability to kind of make decisions over their own body. So I, I really appreciate that that's one of kind of the central focus of the book to really draw out, okay, what's underneath these kind of accepted messaging around, oh, women are just going to take hormonal birth control. Yes. And I think it's so important to recognize that hormonal birth control methods, prescription birth control methods, right? They have the power to, to help positively change people's lives, right? But the technology itself is just the technology. And the way that we use the technology, the way that we deploy the technology, and the way that we support the use of technology is what really determines whether or not it has the power to liberate or not. And I think for so many women, whether in the book or or not, um, just kind of in the wider society, 
they end up having the feeling that their birth control method is not as empowering as they want it to be, right? People in the book talk about having to be on the pill or being put on the shot, right? Mm -hmm. Or having somebody tell them that they need to be on the IUD. And that's that doesn't feel liberating for them, right? That didn't feel freeing. That didn't make them feel um, like they were in control of their bodies, right? So even as it helped them prevent pregnancy, it also ended up pushing up against these boundaries for them that made them feel like they weren't in full control of their bodies, right? That they weren't in full control over their decision-making because they felt like they needed to be on something because their partners wanted them to be on something or their parents wanted to be on something or their doctors told them they should be on something. And so one of the things that I think is especially important, and I think for people who study the reproductive histories of marginalized people, this is this is what we do. This is not a surprise, right? That birth control technologies aren't inherently liberating, right? The the thing that makes them liberating is people's ability to use them freely and without coercion. And one of the things that I really wanted to bring forth in the book is to show how because of socialization in people's families and because of the broader messages that we uphold, that people can feel coerced into using particular birth control methods and not feel like they have um, free control over the over their decision making. And I think all of us have a role to play in making sure that we interrupt those messages so that we can actually make sure that birth control is as liberating as it has the potential to be. Mm -hmm. Yes. And you talk a lot about where we learn all these different messages from. So as you mentioned, from healthcare providers, but also, of course, from our families, um, from friends, from partners, and then, of course, from broader society, whether media messages and things like that. You know, as I was reading the book, it made me reflect back on my own experiences with hormonal birth control, of course. <laughs> so I'm reading the book. I'm, I'm reading the vignettes of the different women um, that you spoke with. And I particularly remember a time where I was really shamed by my healthcare provider for not wanting to get an IUD. And so just thinking about, as you were mentioning, like these feelings of being coerced or that you're not doing what you're supposed to do um, as a person who can have children, right? That I'm not doing my job um, in preventing, you know, pregnancy by not taking a very specific type of birth control too. Um, and so it was just making me think about, you know, how women are empowered or disempowered for making decisions about their bodies. And of course, you talk a lot about that in the book as well, folks feeling pressured to use or not use certain types of birth control. Yes, I think that is so spot on when you mentioned um, being shamed for not using a particular method, right? And the assumption being that you would not be able to prevent pregnancy like you wanted to if you didn't use that method. Mm -hmm. And in the book, people talk about, I talk about lots of women's experiences having similar uh, circumstances. I talk about my own experience, right? Where I got an IUD uh, based on my healthcare provider's concern that I was going to get pregnant from only using condoms with my partner and my partner and I had been using condoms. We had no problem <laughs> using condoms, right? That was not a problem for us. 
and I, I, we've gotten this far in the interview and I haven't yet said condoms are really effective when used consistently and correctly, right? So this messaging that they're not effective at all, it's not based on them being kind of technologically effective. It's based on them not being used consistently and correctly. And so in my experience, the, my healthcare provider uh, found out that I was only using condoms with my partner, my long-term partner, um, and suggested that I, I had to get on the IUD. Um, and I talk about in the book, like, I didn't even think about that as as being gendered. I didn't think about that as being part of this process that I document in the book. I call, I call it gendered compulsory birth control, right? How we compel women and people who can get pregnant to use prescription birth control methods to prevent pregnancy, right? We make them believe that it is ultimately their responsibility. I didn't even think of anything of that, right? I, I was, and I studied gender. I was a sociologist, <laughs> right? It didn't occur to me, like, hey, my healthcare provider is like contributing to pregnancy prevention being solely my responsibility, mm -hmm. um, even though my partner and I had no problem only using condoms. And so I, I think that the ways that we challenge women's decision-making abilities can be so subtle, right? So, so much mm -hmm. of this is this subtle way that we suggest that women don't know what's best for them and that if women do know what's believe that they know what's best for them, they might not be paying attention to some of the unintended consequences that can result from their decisions versus saying women have desires, women have needs, people who get pregnant have desires and needs, and they have a right to make their own decisions about how they're going to manage their fertility and mm -hmm. to not be shamed or to not be made to feel like they're doing something wrong for going against what somebody else believes is right for them. And so in, in this case, so much of this is about the ways that women's um, reproductive autonomy and their bodily autonomy uh, can be uh, encroached upon by providers, right? On the one hand, providers who believe that they're going to get pregnant if they don't use a prescription form of birth control, or in this case, if they don't use a long acting mm -hmm. form of birth control like the IUD, but in other cases, they can have their autonomy encroached upon by providers who believe that they shouldn't be pregnant, right? Some people that might be interested in getting pregnant, but have providers who believe this is not the right time for them and that they shouldn't be trying to do that. And so, so much of my book is trying to uncover the things um, that we just miss right we just miss in going about our daily lives and that's why it was so important to me not only because I am you know use a feminist lens but it was so important for me to share my own experience with gendered compulsory birth control uh in part because I only recognized it through writing this book right but in part because it also just demonstrates that even people who are aware of gender gender inequality um even even we can be um kind of how, I should say even we can have challenges understanding how this plays out in our lives. Um, and I think it's particularly striking when this is what I, I, I'm dedicated to, right? I'm dedicated to study this. I'm dedicated, I'm dedicated to eradicating gender inequality. Um, and I couldn't even see how it played out in my own life until I spent years writing a book. And then I said, oh my gosh, like my experience totally mirrors the experiences of these women that I'm talking about in this book. And that was just really striking for me. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it just goes to show that how invested we are as a society in these gendered norms around contraceptive use. And so 
it means that we have to be that much more aware and vigilant in how we might be prescribing to some of these gendered assumptions or even just accepting them, right? And, you know, in that kind of healthcare patient interaction, it's very easy to say, oh, you know, like, you all are the experts, right? And kind of default on their expertise um, when in fact we do get a say over what's happening, or at least we should get a say over what's happening um, with our bodies. You know, healthcare providers are really unhappy if you only use condoms. They do not like that at all. Um, and I think that also just goes into broader cultural messaging that you know, in a way that women can't be trusted to make decisions about their bodies, that we have to have, um, you know, some sort of additional kind of safety measure. And the IUD being one that is really pushed a lot because it's kind of like a, oh, you get it and then you forget it type of method. Yeah. And I think I am, I'm just so happy that we're talking about this because it really highlights the ways that gender inequality is built into our very understandings of these methods, right? So when when doctors are talking with their patients about why they shouldn't just use condoms, right? It's based on this assumption that condoms are not as effective, but that is once again, based on people not using condoms consistently and correctly. And I always just go back to the ways that we treat condoms differently than we treat other methods um and not just other methods I don't just mean other methods like other birth control methods but the way that we treat other things right so for example people have trouble flossing but we don't just tell them yeah nobody likes to floss don't worry about flossing find something else right no you say flossing's really important let's figure out how we can help you floss let's help figure out how we can help you brush your teeth three times a day right when it comes to condoms it's fascinating to me that we say, yeah, people don't really like to use them. So just have your partner use a prescription birth control method. And then as you're saying, when you have a person who says, no, I actually want to just use condoms, they are made to feel like they're doing something wrong, right? Like they are making a, a bad or misinformed decision versus saying, no, it's not okay that we're not holding partners accountable for using condoms. And that in fact, if we did hold partners accountable for using condoms, some of the effectiveness uh, metrics might look better uh, in, in part because our effect, our our metrics look stronger on these prescription methods, not only because they don't have to be used at every act of intercourse like the condom does, but also because as I mentioned at the beginning, as we've been talking about, we put a lot of pressure on women to use them all the time, as often as possible, as often as they should, and regardless of what it does to them and how it makes them feel. And so I just think there's so much here to be discussed um and the the point that you've been making about the ways that we don't trust women's decision making uh, abilities is, is such a key part a, a key part of that and i think it goes hand in hand with the fact that we don't trust women's decision making but we center men's experiences right so we don't trust their decision making we say that you don't that they don't exactly know what they should be doing but at the same time we say that what men need is the most important and since some of them don't like to wear condoms that means that a woman shouldn't be able to count on her partner to do so 
Mm, yes, there was a lot there. <laughs> Again, <laughs> you said a mouthful right there. Uh, you know, one one of the other key threads in the book is talking about how much um, we center men's enjoyment, particularly in heterosexual relationships. Um, and that comes through in a lot of the stories that um, your respondents tell. Well, their male partner, you know, said they didn't like condoms. So therefore, you know, his desires and his enjoyment, his pleasure was more important than the woman's own desires or pleasures or needs. Um, and I think that's really key, again, in how we talk about birth control and then the decisions that get made um, in our sexual encounters. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think that so much of this is just a reflection of the broader expectations that we have for women in our society, right? That they should center the needs of other people, that they should center the desires of other people, that they should focus on making sure that they cater to other people's desires so they can be likable. And when we see the way that this plays out in their relationships, uh, when it comes to birth control and when it comes to their sexual pleasure, it is just really heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking for me as a researcher, right? To be listening to women's stories for the interviews I did or to be reading transcripts and to see the ways that the needs of their partners dominated their own needs, right? To see the times when women con continue to use prescription birth control when they wanted their partners to wear condoms uh, and their partners refused to do so. Um, and what that meant for, for their own feeling of a bodily autonomy or to see uh, some women having experiences with side effects and feeling like it was changing their bodily experience. Um, but they felt like they needed to continue to be on it because that was the only way they could prevent pregnancy because their partners didn't want to wear condoms. And it was, it was just, um, especially striking to me to read those stories and to think about the fact that we don't oftentimes hear about those people's experiences when we think about what the broader discourse around birth control looks like. I think there is not as much conversation around birth control as there should be. There's certainly not as much conversation about the difficulties that people have with birth control, in part because I think there is a concern that people will stop using prescription birth control if we actually honor the fact that some people have a, a really hard time with it mm -hmm. and validate those experiences, right? And say it is hard for them. They are having challenges and that is just true to what their lived experience is. And there are ways that we can support them, but the way to support them is not by suggesting that they have to cater to what other people need, uh, including their partners, right? That the way to support them is to make sure that we're centering what they need and, and figuring out how we can actually help them get what they need and meet their goals. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, let's take another quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. You're tuned in to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa and I'm here with Dr. Crystal Littlejohn and we've been talking about her book, Just Get on the Pill, The Uneven Burden of Reproductive Politics. 
Now, I know we've talked a lot about some of the challenges um, when it comes to bodily autonomy and even, of course, a lot about the cultural messaging around the different types of birth control. And you mentioned earlier that how we really need to interrogate these different messages. Um, and I'm wondering, what are some of the solutions, right? What can we do both as individuals, but what can we be thinking about on a broader societal level as well um, when we're thinking about um, reproductive politics and this uneven burden of reproductive politics? I think first it starts with language. I absolutely think we need to change the ways that we talk about birth control methods and we change the ways that we think about birth control methods, right? So when we started out this conversation talking about the condom and it being understood as a man's method, and we talk, people call it the male condom, women in the study talked about the male condom, right? I think that we need to first start with changing the way that we think about these methods, because that goes a huge, that, that goes a long way uh, in helping us just start at the very foundation of mm -hmm. reshaping the way that we use the methods, right? If you think that a method is a man's method, then that in itself is going to stop you from even trying to go by the method or suggest that your partner use it. And so I think thinking, and there's, there's folks, right, doing this work around calling the male condom the external condom versus the male condom, right? The external condom, the internal condom, I think changing our language around it is key. I think that interrogating the way that we automatically attach methods to bodies in that way um, in our families it, with our friendships I think that's also key in the book I talk about how women very rarely gave each other condoms right but they had no problem sharing their prescription birth control with each other I talk about how parents would make appointments for their daughters for prescription birth control they didn't go out of their way at all to give their daughters condoms and so I think that in addition to changing our language, there's actually steps that we can take to change the ways that we behave around birth control that definitely interrupts this gendered messaging that we have around it that automatically suggests that it's going to be the woman's job to use a prescription birth control method um, and that condoms don't have to be a part of her repertoire. Uh, and that's something that her partner should take care of. And one thing that we haven't actually talked about is what it means when we say her partner should take care of a condom, mm. but her partner does it, right? So it's like, there's all of these things um, that support this, this broader uh, process whereby women are expected to take care of prescription birth control to prevent pregnancy. And I think that in order to interrupt that, we have to interrupt the practices that we use that reinforce that, right? So really making sure that when we're talking about prescription birth control and condoms, we make sure everybody has access to all of the information that they can have access to. And we don't kind of bifurcate that and say that men only have to know about this, women only have to know about that. And obviously that's leaving out trans and non-binary people and genderqueer people, right? Their experiences aren't even part of, of that conversation at all when we talk about this male-female um, framework. And then lastly, I mean, I can go on and on. I have all <laughs> kinds of ideas, but I'm going to try and like keep it brief. Uh, so I would say that lastly, I think that we also need to see some serious policy changes around this, right? Making sure that we're covering vasectomy. I think um, with the uh, overturn of Roe v. Wade, right, we have more interest in vasectomy. Um, and I think that it's 
been important for partners to do their their part to prevent pregnancy using whatever methods are available to them. That was important long before uh, the Supreme Court's decision. Um, but I think that when you have people who are interested in pursuing vasectomy as an option, but run into challenges getting it covered by their insurance, obviously, right? Those are things that on a policy level need to be changed so that people have access to all of the birth control methods that are out there. And so that people don't fall back on using a method for women and people who can get pregnant simply because that method is is covered, right? That method is cheaper for them. And so I think there are individual decisions that we can make in terms of language. I think there are interpersonal decisions that we can make in terms of how we support people getting different birth control methods. And then I think that there are institutional things that we can do, like making sure that our policies actually provide people with the methods that they need. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Thank you so much for those solutions. I always like to think about the solutions, particularly with something like this, where there are changes that we can take on an individual level that will have immediate effects, um, as well as some changes that we can be a part of on a broader level that might take a little bit longer to realize, um, particularly in our current <laughs> current days and times. Um, but th thinking about our, just as you mentioned, the way we talk about condoms or the way we talk about hormonal birth control, those are changes that we can make immediately in how we talk to whether it's younger folks or even our own, you know, peers as well that can have immediate changes. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that I, as I was doing this work, I started immediately like talking with people about, hey, we need to think differently about this when I'm giving talks, even before the book got published, right? I was trying to get us to think differently about this because these are things that we can do immediately. It does take rethinking. It does take us pausing and saying, hey, I was about to reinforce this message that I don't want to reinforce. Uh, but it is doable. And I think that it is something that can have dramatic consequences if we just start to do it now. Mm -hmm. I agree. I think one more thing I, I want to give you the opportunity to talk about is um, how we think about um, women's fertility as it relates to public health. So this is something you talked about in the book in not only putting all of this responsibility of pregnancy or preventing pregnancy on women, but then how these different conversations are linked to public health concerns. And I thought that this was really key. So again, not just thinking about the individual choices, but then how women get blamed for a lot of other impacts in society or public health outcomes. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more um, about that. And as part of this, I also see conversations around reproductive justice as well. And um, some of the organizing that is going on around different policy changes. Yeah. So women are blamed so often for social problems, right? That have nothing to do with their decisions. And pregnancy prevention and unintended pregnancy is just one more of the experiences that our public health messaging, I think, tries to blame individual women for, right? So when we think about uh, the different challenges that people have in our society when it comes to income, when it comes to housing, when it comes to challenges with mental health, you would be surprised by how many folks attach those kinds of challenges to women's decision-making around pregnancy prevention, right? So the idea is that 
Uh, people are poor because they're not preventing pregnancy, right? People have uh, challenges with mental health because they're having unintended pregnancies versus recognizing that there are broader systemic issues that are causing issues with income. There are broader systemic issues that are causing uh, challenges with housing stability. That is that is not a consequence of whether or not people are using birth control as much as some people would like to suggest that it is. And so I think that when it comes to trying to support people's uh, right to reproductive justice, right, which is just people have a right to have children, not have children, and to parent the children that they have in safe and healthy communities, um, the big issue is making sure that challenges with systemic injustice are eradicated so that people can actually have the lives that they deserve to have, right? And the solution, if you think about it in those terms, is not actually uh, getting people to use prescription birth control to prevent pregnancy. Um, the solution is fixing issues with um, housing. This, the solution is making sure that people can have a livable wage so they can create the lives that they want to create so that people can have the children and raise the children that they want to raise in safe environments. Um, and so the ways that we blame people who can get pregnant uh, for not preventing pregnancy and then suggest that they're not preventing pregnancy is what leads to these different social issues that uh, we have that we're grappling with and that we need to continue to grapple with with systemic solutions, not individual solutions is just another part of of the book um, that gets us to think differently about the power of, and importance of sociology for helping us understand social problems, right? Women are going to be blamed for pregnancies, women are going to be blamed for not using prescription birth control, but not using prescription birth control is not the cause of the systemic issues that they face that make it difficult for them to create the families that they want to create in the communities that they want to create those those families in with supports, um, with uh, different resources that they need to have their families look the way they want them to. Uh, it's these suggestions that it's their fault are are just part of a broader uh, tradition of scapegoating people that are are victimized by a system um, that and it's not their fault that that uh, we face the challenges that we face in our society, including issues with poverty, houselessness, etc. Uh, we need to actually solve those problems and not suggest that the solution is people using birth control. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Littlejohn, for being here with us this morning. Absolutely love the book. I learned so much. I can't wait for everyone to read it. Um, and so they can, you know, tell all of their friends <laughs> about what they learned as well. Thank you so much for being here with us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. It's been awesome talking with you. Thank you again to Dr. Crystal Littlejohn for joining us this morning. Her book is Just Get on the Pill, The Uneven Burden of Reproductive Politics. There was so much in this book that we did not get a chance to talk about this morning. So if you want to learn more, definitely go pick up the book available in bookstores now. I cannot wait to tell all of my friends, especially those who have kids, about what I've learned from this book. Maybe I should just send them this conversation. Remember, you can listen to the replay on wyxr.org 
or subscribe to Let's Grab Coffee in podcast format wherever you stream podcasts. Well, for today's positive note, I just want to leave you with this reminder. The grass is greener where you water it. So what are you watering? This has been Let's Grab Coffee. I'm Sanaa and I'm here every Monday morning. I can't wait for you to join me again next week.